right, 12.30, we are going to get started. Just a reminder, if you miss each week, DiscipleDojo.org. Go to the page that says podcast. You can listen to every single session all the way back to Exodus. So we're building a library. It's free. Just click on it. You can listen to it in SoundCloud. You can listen to it in iTunes. You can listen to it in Stitcher. Or you can go to YouTube and watch the video. So all of that is on the website. All of that is possible because people support. They click on this green button at the top that says donate and they support Disciple Dojo particularly on a monthly basis which is incredibly helpful for our board to be able to determine what resources we have and don't have. But we also take one-time gifts as well. Cash under the table, I'm always fine with it. No, but uh, for real, if you want tax credit, we're a 501c3 so we'd love to make sure that you get a little love from Uncle Sam for donating to us. So anyway, everything on the website, discipledojo.org. If you don't know how to spell disciple, Google it. Uh, We're in the book of Judges. We're in Judges chapter 2 this week. Last week was the introduction. Last week began the downward spiral. Judges is going to start high and end low. It is a recounting of Israel's history through the prophetic eye of, uh, of God's perspective on it. Um, and it's, it's a downward... It's a, it, people think the book of Judges is cyclical. It's not cyclical. It's a downward cycle. Every, every section is progressively worse than the one before. Every judge is progressively worse than the judge before. And as we mentioned before in the introduction, the first week, um, the judges in the book of Judges are not always heroes. They start out as heroes, but as Israel decays morally, the judges and who God can find to raise up also gets pretty slim pickings. And so by the the start of the book, you have judges like Othniel, who are pretty legit. And then at the end of the book, you have judges like Samson, who are horrible. And so what we're going to be doing is seeing how that plays out over time through the book. And it all started last week. We looked at chapter 1. It started when Israel, the tribes, each of the tribes in some way compromised or refused to do what Joshua had charged them to do, what Moses had charged Joshua to charge them to do, which was to go into the land that God was giving them and drive out the Canaanization of the land. Drive out the vestiges of Canaanism. Now, it wasn't that they had to drive out Canaanites. We saw that when we looked at the book of Numbers. Um, When we looked at the book of Joshua itself, Canaanites were okay if they recognized the God of Israel and engrafted into God's people. So you have people like Ruth. You have people like Rahab. People that come into the people of God. So it wasn't the, the, the ethnicity that God was concerned about. God's never cared about ethnicity. It was the religiosity. It was the Canaanite practices. It was the bringing in of their gods and the worship of their gods, which we're going to talk about in this section today. But chapter 1 recounted how Israel settled for less than what Joshua had started in the book of Joshua. Joshua had broken the back of all of the uh, strong lords. 
the, the, I mean the strongmen, the overlords, the military might in Canaan. Now it was up to Israel and the tribes to go into the land and ferret out and continue to root out the remaining vestiges of Canaanite excuse me, of Canaanite culture. And they didn't do that. They settled. Tribe by tribe, they settled for a little less and a little less until eventually you get to the tribe of Dan and they didn't even take anything. They just said, we're going somewhere up north because it's too hard to take this land. And so you see this turn towards rebellion. Now, that was chapter 1. Joshua, I mean, Judges is a lot like Genesis in that you have two accounts at the beginning of the book that tell the same things from slightly different perspectives. So a lot of times people say there's two creation stories. There's not two creation stories. There's one creation account, but it has two parts. One focuses on the broad and the universal, and then chapter 2, verse 4 and following zooms in on what we would say happened at the individual level with the creation of humanity. And we talked about that way back in Genesis. Some of you are old enough to remember that. But Joshua, I mean, Judges is the same. Sorry, we've been in Joshua all year. It's hard to switch gears. Judges is the same way. It starts with one account that is historical and military and logistic. And that's what we read last week that tells about the, the taking of the land. Um, and so I'm going to make sure that I start the recording as we get into this. There we go. It's on. Just making sure. Never can tell. This happened once before I got home and there was nothing recorded. I was so bummed. Um, but the point is, Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 1 starts and tells the military logistical realities that Israel faced and failed. Now in chapter 2, we're going to get a pivot and we're going to kind of recapitulate and look at everything from the perspective of God. Like, What does God think about all this? Because God wasn't really mentioned in the first chapter that much. It was all about what Israel did and didn't do. Now in chapter 2, we get the exposition of what the events of chapter 1 were. So chapter 2 starts off the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And we're going to talk about why this place is called Bochim later. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. He said, you shall break down their altars. Now, those of you that weren't here for Exodus... The angel of the Lord. You see it says the angel of the Lord went up. And then all of a sudden in the speech, it's God speaking. I did this. I did this. I did this. And people have always had different uh, conclusions on that. Some have said, well, the angel is speaking because he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. It's God's special angel. Um, Maybe, but there's no the Lord says in any of this. And it's almost every time you see the angel... The angel acts and talks and speaks as if he is God, Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And the reason for that is because it is. The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, that is the angel that is the Lord. Just like the land of Canaan. doesn't mean the land like you have Canaan and then you have another land that's kind of special to Canaan. No, the land of Canaan is the land that is Canaan. The land of Egypt is the land that is Egypt. The angel of the Lord is the angel that is the Lord. If you want to be a grammar nerd, it's called an appositional genitive. And what it means is it's describing the blank of blank can be interpreted as the blank that is blank. 
the land that is Egypt, the angel that is the Lord. And that explains a couple of things. One, it explains why whenever the angel of the Lord appears and speaks, he speaks with God's voice. It also explains how God already in the Old Testament is setting up His people with the concept that God can be God of all the universe. God can be God omnipotent, omnipresent, and also appear localized as a man. And sometimes the angel of the Lord, is they think it's just a man. When he talked to Abraham, he just thought it was a man for, at first. When Joshua encountered him, he thought it was just a man with a drawn sword. Then you find it's the angel of the Lord. See, already in the Old Testament, there is the groundwork being laid for the concept of God being able to incarnate. For God being able to appear in localized form and still be God above and God in heavens. It's going to have huge implications in the New Testament when, when somebody actually claims to speak God's voice and also be God in the flesh. And it's a very Hebrew idea going all the way back into the Old Testament that God is God above, but also can be in localized form, can, can appear as the angel of the Lord. This is why in older commentaries and some commentaries today, you'll see commentators say this is the, the pre-incarnate Christ. They'll say this is the, the Son before He became Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Son, the, the second person of the Trinity, appearing. And, and so the angel of the Lord is sometimes called the pre-incarnate Christ. Personally, I think that's pushing it too far. I think it's going beyond what the text can actually bear out. But I don't think it's far off. I, don't think it's, I think it's, on, it's the right idea, but I think it's just trying to make proper and, and, and precise what the text leaves ambiguous, which is what theologians have a bad habit of doing uh, because the Bible is very ambiguous at times and we want to get all our ducks in a row and make sure everything's right. But the Bible has a way of kind of shaking up our theology. And so this is one of those ways. The angel of the Lord that appears speaks as if he is the Lord because he is the Lord. The Lord that goes with his people, among his people. And so he says, this is what I told you, don't make a covenant with people in the land. Now last chapter, we just saw numerous covenants made with the peoples of the land. They were going to fight them, but they were like, nah, we're just going to do forced labor. What that meant was they entered into a covenant, a parity covenant, not a suzerainty, but maybe a parity covenant. And they said, hey, you do forced labor for us in return for us living at peace with you, and we'll just coexist. All right? So on the chariots, the coexist bumper sticker was already in place, if you've seen that around. Um, but that was the deal. It was like, we'll just coexist. And God said, I specifically told you numerous times through Moses and through Joshua, do not do that. It is bad news if you do that. But they did that in the last chapter. So the angel shows up and says, I told you, you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you, I will not drive them out before you. They will be in your sides. And the NIV adds the phrase, the thorn in your side. Some others say there'll be a snare at your side. Uh, the Hebrew just says they'll be in your side. Uh, so the image is probably like that. You know, something... Nothing, nobody likes getting poked in the side with anything. They will be in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. That's the key. Their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And so they named that place Bokim. Bokim means weepers in Hebrew. And that's what the place was called. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now this is the last time in, in, in the book of Judges that Israel's weeping will, will somewhat resemble repentance. Every time after this, they're just going to cry out. 
There's not going to be, to my knowledge, and we'll see as we go through, but I don't think there's going to be another time in this book when their crying out is accompanied by an actual repentance. It'll always just be a crying out. And God will always step in and show compassion, undeserved compassion. Because they've already broken the covenant. That's what the angel is announcing. That's why they're weeping. Just like at the golden calf incident. The covenant was broken. And God in His grace said, I'm going to give you a mulligan. I'm going to let you do this again. And Exodus, you know, the whole last half of the book of Exodus was about that. Well, this time for this generation, because that was two generations ago, this generation, it's the same thing. The covenant's broken. It seems that there's no hope. And the people weep and they offer sacrifices. Now the narrator jumps back. This is a dischronologization, a recapitulation. The narrator jumps back to when Joshua was still alive. Joshua was dead. He died at the end of Joshua. And then he died in the, before the events of the last chapter or sometime during. The chronology is not strict. It doesn't follow modern historiography. So the author jumps back, recapitulates the session so to, to the section before to give a sweeping account of the events at the tail end of Joshua's life that bridge into the period of the judges, which are going to begin in the next chapter. And this is going to be an overview of the entire book, this chapter. So if you want to know where the book is headed, this is, this is basically the thesis statement of the rest of the book of Judges. This is this chapter. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. We saw that's what last week's chapter was all about. Them going and doing this thing. So this is a recap. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him who had seen the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So for a generation, you know, Joshua and his peers, once they, while they were all still alive, the people served the Lord. Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Now this phrase, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, this is the first of, I believe, seven occurrences in the book of Judges that this phrase is going to have. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result of them doing ra'ah, evil, they are going to experience ra'ah, calamity. It's the same word in Hebrew. So the actions of the people doing evil are going to bring about calamity on them. The book of Jonah, I believe, has a play on this as well, uh, this concept but of bringing calamity. And so some translations say that God brought evil upon them. And what it means is God brought disaster upon them. And it's the result of them doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what's the evil? Serving the Baals. Now why is this plural? Who, is the, who are the Baals? Baal. Hebrew word Baal. That's how you say it. Every time you see two consonants together, pronounce both of them in, in Hebrew. This is in the video. If you go on the website, I have pronouncing Old Testament names, a little 10-minute video. Every time you see two consonants back-to-back, pronounce both of them. They don't do consonant clusters like we do in English. So it's not Baal, it's Baal. And there's a little apostrophe between the A's. So Baal is just the Hebrew word for husband or lord. So if you want to call somebody my lord, you say my Baal. If you want to call them my husband, my Baal. 
it's just an honorific title for Lord or husband. So who was Baal, Baal in general? Well, he was the Lord or husband. He was, it was like the word God. The word God is just a title, but we call God, God. It's the same thing in Hebrew with Baal and with their other word for God, El. So the Canaanite pantheon, basically, and those of you that missed some of the numbers series where we talked about this, in the Canaanite religion, you had El, who was the father God. El is just the generic word for God. When God is in the Bible, he's called El, or sometimes he's called Elohim, which is a plural version, but it's a plural of majesty. So El is just the generic word for God. So in the Canaanite fertility religion, you had El, but he was kind of the old God. He was the grandfatherly, he's just kind of, he's dad in the recliner, God. All right, he's not dad out cutting the grass. He's past all that nonsense. And he had 70 sons and daughters. And they all have different names, but some of them were Baal, who was the god of the storm, uh, Mot, who was the god of death, and these are all just the Hebrew word for the, Mot is just the Hebrew word for death. Um, you had Yam, the god of the sea, and you had um, Ashtar, or Ashtarte, or Asherah, the goddess who was El's wife, so Baal's mother. And then you had Anat, who was also Baal's consort. So depending on where you go in Canaan, different flavors of Baalism prevailed. Anybody that's ever been to India, you know this is exactly how it is there still. There's infinite variations of the gods and their stories, and they differ from village to village, even though it's the same god. So in some of the accounts, Baal's consort is Anat, his sister. And he, that's who his sexual partner is, is his sister. In other accounts and in more popular accounts his consort was Asherah his mother his dad's wife the Baal and Asherah would do the deed and so this helps explain a couple of things one it explains why in the Levitical prohibitions back in the holiness code when God said you will not do these things that the Canaanites and the Egyptians did there's so much emphasis on incest because the Canaanite fertility pagan religion was all kinds of incestuous. It was not a family tree, it was a shrub. All right? Um, it also explains the lure of Canaanite religion to Israelites because it was all about fertility. Everything was all about fertility. Canaan did not have a river like the Nile that seasonally flooded and ensured crops grew. Canaan relied on rainfall. And in order for there to be rainfall, there has to be a storm. In order for there to be a storm, Baal has to get excited. So you want Baal to get excited because the storm, not to get too graphic, but the rain was Baal's seed. And it penetrated the ground, which was Asherah's womb. And up from there rose the crops and the herds and the flocks, which were her offspring. This is all, it's all wrapped up in sex. And so for the mind of the Canaanite worshiper, you want to incite Baal to send the rain. How do you do that? Well, you give him the equivalent of Cinemax late night TV. All right, you go to the temple, you perform deeds that you want him to do in the heavenlies with a sacred prostitute, and then he does it, and then he sends the rains. He gets excited. It's, I mean, without being crass, humans were like porn for gods in the Canaanite fertility religion. Like, they watched us, and they got excited, and then they did their thing. That's what, you, you have to see how sexuality was wrapped up in idolatry and paganism. That's why it was such a lure. It's not, it wouldn't be a big lure for people if, uh, if it was just, oh yeah, hey, pray to this rock. No, 
What? what? Why? I can pray to the tabernacle. There's no difference. But if it's, hey, see that beautiful pagan shrine temple prostitute? You get to come have sex with her and God blesses you for it. That's an evangelism plan. That'll get people coming to your church, right? So this is what the Canaanite fertility religion was all about. And it's what Israel succumbed to, that generation that did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook Him and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord handed him, them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as He had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Israel became Canaanite and therefore God treated them like Canaanites. That's what the chapter is saying. That was the punishment for breaking the covenant. You want to go after these other gods? You want to be like the peoples around you? Cool. Go for it. I'll treat you just like them. You get just as much protection from me as they do, which is zero. And you're not strong. You're not mighty. You're a rabble of slaves that came out of Egypt. And the only reason you're anything is because I brought you out with my power. So when you turn from me, you're turning to nothingness. And this is the critique of the prophets over and over and over. But they were in great distress or great misery. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. This entire paragraph is a synopsis of the next, I don't know, 12 or so chapters we're going to read. <clears throat> More than that, 15 chapters. Then the Lord raised up judges. Now, we think of judges, we think of Wapner, Judy, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Clarence Thomas. You know, we think of judges like, ju that's not what judges were in the Bible. Judges were bringers of justice. In fact, the only judge that actually judged anything was Deborah. She was the only one that actually heard cases and judged. So the word judge is, in English is actually not a great translation. It comes from the Greek translation, which is where we get the name judges from. The book in Greek is called Kritai, which means judges. But a better translation is deliverers. Because that's what they did. When it talks about a judge being raised up, and it will say, and he delivered the people, it's the word saved. It's the word that Joshua's name comes from that Jesus' name comes from. The word Yasha, salvation, where we get Yeshua. So the judges are savers. They're deliverers. Only one of them was an actual judge like we would think. So there's a specific role. A prophet is one who is, hears from God and speaks it. Prophet is the Hebrew word that just means seer. One who sees things and speaks God's view of those things. So judges and prophets aren't the same. But there's a little bit of overlap because some of the judges exercised gifts of prophecy. Some of the judges spoke God's words like Deborah and others. But most of them did not. Samson never uttered anything prophetic. Ehud never did anything prophetic. Uh, well, you could argue that his assassination, but we'll get there later. Um, but for the most part, they didn't do, they weren't prophets. They were military deliverers who saved Israel from the hands of their oppressors. That's the role of these judges. And God raised them up to do just that. Then God raised up judges who saved them, that's the word saved, like get saved, 
out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Now you see why the use of the image of prostitution is used in the Old Testament about worshipping other gods. Because literally it most often involved actual prostitution. So it became the synonym or the, the image of going after foreign gods. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord, and NIV says, had compassion on them as they groaned, but the, the, the actual Hebrew is, can also be translated as the Lord changed His mind. And, and it's, it was translated, it was the same verb that was used that way earlier when it says God changed His mind and relented from the disaster. So either way, it's not a huge deal, but the point of it is God sent punishment on them they groan and they cry out. God is moved and He, changed, he says, okay, I'm going to actually deliver you. In His grace, He sends a deliverer. Whether it's out of compassion, whether it's just Him changing His mind. and do, I mean, that, what that does to your theology, just too bad. Let it do something that God changes His mind in the Bible on numerous occasions. Um, what that means, we have to work out. But the text is basically saying that they cry out. Their misery was so great that even God couldn't bear it infinitely and so he would send them these deliverers who would save them under those who oppress them and afflict them verse 19 but when the judge died the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers that's the downward spiral it's not like they went back to their old ways they went back to worse ways after every judge cycle following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So that's the synopsis of the rest of this book. Therefore, the Lord was very angry. In Hebrew it says, therefore the Lord became hot of nose. <laughs> that's an idiom. That's how you'd say became very angry. Your nose gets hot. Don't know where that comes from, but that's the literal translation. Uh, NIV just translates to the idiom, it became very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I'll use them, these nations, to test Israel, to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord, and then this is where NIV says, had allowed those nations to remain. That's way too passive for the Hebrew. The Hebrew text literally says, the Lord gave those nations rest. The same language used for Israel in Joshua's day, giving Israel rest from their enemies. Now, once Israel's abandoned the covenant, the, flip, the script has been flipped. Now God's going to give those nations rest in the midst of Israel. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands. As, uh, he did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So in other words, like he was doing with Joshua, he gave them into the hands of him and Joshua was like a tank, unstoppable. And the people under Joshua and the generation right after Joshua and then the next generation turned from the Lord. So God said, alright, that's it. I'm no longer fighting these battles. And you're going to experience what it's like to go up against these people unaided. And they're going to kick your butts. And that's exactly what they did for centuries. And so this section is fascinating. The fascinating part is it says, therefore, verse 20, the Lord was very angry with Israel. He says, because this nation has violated. He uses the Hebrew term goyim. He refers to Israel as the term that's used for Gentile nations. 
He's, usually when it's talking about Israel, it says this people, Am in Hebrew, my people, Am. He says Goy this time. This nation, and he uses the term that elsewhere, everywhere means Gentiles. So God is distancing himself in this section from the next, the following generations. Because when the covenants abandon, violence and evil are the inevitable outflow. And after this, no battle until the monarchy, until hundreds of years later in the time of Saul, no battle of it that's recounted will be a battle of Israel expanding. All the battles will be battles of enemies that are oppressing them and Israel battling back against oppression. The period of conquest ended. And it ended as a failure.